Man, it's good to see you all. Good morning. Everybody doing well? I have missed y'all. It has been uh, way too long. It's been a couple of weeks since I've had the chance to, to share with you all, and so I'm, I'm grateful to be back and, and excited to be with you this, this morning in particular. I want to uh, first just acknowledge uh, with a word of appreciation those that filled in for me the last couple of weeks that, you know, we finished up the missions emphasis at the last Sunday of November uh, by having Chris Walls speak and give us a little bit of a message uh, speaking to kind of God's happily ever after in, in the story that we have and in the way in which we can anticipate what God is going to bring to fruition. And so he did a phenomenal job, grateful for him to share his heart and kind of the things that, that God had put on his mind and in his heart as he studied the scriptures. And then uh, I was all ready to go last week to get the Advent season started off, and then Saturday afternoon, man, I just crashed terribly. I'd been flirting with something the last couple of days uh, prior to that, and then it just came with a vengeance Saturday night. So I had to text the staff uh, to get a lot of my responsibilities covered uh, Sunday morning, and then uh, was thinking about folks that I'd already been talking to about coming and sharing a message, and uh, Warren Etheridge, the new BSM director uh, at, at TCU, and also new church member here with he and his wife, Sarah, uh, I thought, you know, he and I had been talking about him having a chance to come and speak, and so I thought, man, I hope he's ready for the last-minute uh, invitation, and so thankfully he was, and, and we were blessed by his message last week, so special word of appreciation to both Chris and to Warren. I would also invite you guys to continue to pray for Warren and Sarah. Uh, they are expecting their first child any day now, I believe, and so I continue to pray for them, but grateful that we have folks like that that can step in when things like that unfold on my end. Now, what that means, though, is that since I missed the last two Sundays, the sermon gets to be at least twice as long today. Okay? In fact, it works well for us. In fact, I think I can just go straight into the Christmas program tonight, all right? So just kind of get comfortable, and we'll just make a one big church celebration today. Uh, now, I am excited because it's the Advent season, y'all. Christmas is here, and I love celebrating Christmas. You know, you go into the fall with all these kind of moments of anticipation, these impulses getting ready to celebrate, right? You have these moments where you start thinking, okay, is it, is it too soon to start putting up decorations? Can we start singing Christmas music now? And you start going to these stores, and you see all the this stuff begin to emerge in the aisles, and you begin to think, okay, maybe I can do it. And then you realize it's not even Labor Day yet, and you have to wait a little bit longer. And so it, it presents the question, when can you officially start celebrating Christmas? Now, there's, there's a lot of different philosophies, a lot of different theories to answer that question. The right answer is after Thanksgiving, okay? And so that's what I typically am waiting for. You try to get on the other side of Thanksgiving, and then it's, it's all out, man. It's like, it's, for me, it's kind of like you have this leashed-up dog that's just ready to tear loose into an open field. And once you get to Thanksgiving, man, you just let that dog off its leash, and it's like, let's go. Let's do it. Lights are up, tree is bought, music is blaring, you can sing without shame, and you can just enjoy the Christmas season. And one of the things that I love about the Christmas season is Christmas movies, okay? And so we, we went straight into that for my family. We were in Abilene celebrating Thanksgiving, and I'm, I mean, we finished the Thanksgiving meal, watched the Cowboys get a victory, and then uh, we, we put on one of the greatest Christmas movies of all time, Christmas Vacation, right? And it just immediately puts you in the Christmas spirit. It's wonderful. And so I love watching this Christmas movies, and it's been kind of a milestone year for us in my household because Jennifer and I decided that our kids were finally old enough to watch Home Alone, another classic Christmas movie. And so we got to show them the miracle of Kevin McAllister making his family disappear. And it was very well received. They loved it. And a couple of days after watching the show, I remember being in my room and I overheard my kids 
speaking to one another when James all of a sudden had, had said, uh, hey, Annabelle, let's play Home Alone, right? And she enthusiastically said, yeah. And I stayed in my room for the next like four or five hours just out of fear of like flying paint cans and blow torches as they set up all these different booby traps throughout the house. And, and it was so much fun for them to celebrate it. And, and it just reminds me of the fun of the season and all these movies that capture it. Now, a couple of movies that are unique to Christmas are, are certain kind of similar messages like It's a Wonderful Life and A Christmas Carol. I always like Mickey's Christmas Carol. That's my preferred uh, version of it. But it's this, this story that has this miraculous event tra- transpire that allows the main character to kind of get a glimpse on what their life would look like if certain choices were made in certain ways. And then all of a sudden they're rushed back to a moment and they've got this new perspective on life and the world around them as a result of this miraculous event. And, and that, to me, really kind of exemplifies Christmas, doesn't it? I mean, it's this opportunity for us to gather together and to encounter that which is miraculous, right? A miraculous event that really should change our perspective of the world and our perspective of ourselves. And, and so really what we begin to need to wrestle with when you approach the Advent season is our ability to embrace and believe the miraculous. And so that's kind of the opening question for us this morning. Do you really believe in miracles? Because I know there is a familiarity to the story, right? We, we know what's coming. But if we stop and just critically assess our ability to embrace the miraculous, I think we'd all acknowledge there is a level of skepticism, right? You hear the story of some healing or some amazing event, and you, there's part of you that goes, yeah, I wonder if that's really the case. There's some form of skepticism. In fact, Psychology Today wrote an article in 2014, or published an article in 2014 that sought to answer this question, and it acknowledged the skepticism we have, right? That there's this kind of inherent um, desire to kind of dismiss that which is miraculous. Daniel Benner was quoted in the article of talking about all these different reasons as to why we often dismiss something that might be considered miraculous. Could be uh, the fact that we just gravitate towards scientific explanation, right? We, We live in a scientific world, and so we tend to gravitate towards the sciences to give us the answers that we often seek. Or maybe it's out of fear, right? Fear of not really understanding the implications of something miraculous, what it might mean or what it might imply. Or maybe it's just this this inability to repeat those same results. Well, it happened once, but it can't happen again, so therefore it must have been an aberration of some sort, right? And there are all these things that prevent us from truly embracing that which is miraculous. Now, what was interesting about the article was that it was really kind of looking at the field of of medicine and miraculous healing, so to speak, and how in the last few decades all this research has, has shown how there's this beautiful integration between medicine and spiritual life, right? The, the, the way in which the, the brain and the body responds to prayer and to meditation. One, one uh, study indicated the, the fact that the greatest stimulant to the immune system is a response to unconditional love. Or, or these neuroscience studies that show the brain's activity when it engages in intentional prayer and meditation that then increases its ability to heal and recover. And so this, the article ultimately concluded to say, listen, you, you don't really need to question the ability to see that, that spiritual wellness really actually does help us in many profound ways. And so the author quoted Richard Niebuhr by saying, it's not, that, it's not really a question of can man accept miracles today, but we need to be shown 
how. How do we embrace the miraculous? And that's the question for us this morning. What, what would you say? What about you? Do you truly believe in the miraculous? And that's the question I want us to, to wrestle with. But in order to do it well and appropriately, we need to just prepare our hearts, don't we? We need to center our hearts and our minds to not miss even just the miracle of God's living word and the opportunity that we have to sit under its teaching today. And so let's just pray for God's spirit in this moment to awaken our hearts to that which is miraculous, not just for the morning, but really for the whole Christmas season. Would you close your eyes? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I pray that we could just stop for a moment and be in your presence. And that you would bless us with your spirit. God, that we would come with an understanding and an anticipation that your word is living and active. That it in and of itself is a miracle that can transform and to change our perspective of this world and who we are. And so change us. God, if there is skepticism, if there is, if there is hesitation, may we surrender it to you so that we can fully see all that you have done through Jesus. Today is for you and for your, you alone. We pray these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. Hey, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to John chapter 1. This is where we're going to be for the duration of the Advent season. Now, a couple of things about the Gospel of John that I want to get to as we begin this discussion. Now, when you look at the structure of John's Gospel, there's really kind of four distinct sections. You have a prologue in chapter 1, 1 through 18, and then you have this huge chunk in the middle that's really kind of divided into two sections, really the ministry of Jesus and the response to Jesus' ministry. And then you have an epilogue in chapter 21, okay? And that's kind of the full structure of John's gospel and a very summar, sum, uh, kind of summarizing it very crudely, I guess you could say. Where we're going to spend our time for the next few weeks is just in the prologue, okay? If you looked in the prologue, you could kind of break it down into four distinct sections, verses 1 through 5, 6 through 8, 9 through 13, and then 14 through 18, and that's really what we're going to do. Now, since I missed last week, we're kind of cramming one through eight today, and, and we should be able to pull it off, um, especially since we're going until this evening. We should be able to make that work. Um, <clears throat> but, but we're going to look at those sections over the next few weeks. And, and really, as you begin to look at this structure, another question that we need to answer is, who is John writing to? And part of what most scholars seem to suggest is that John is most likely writing to second-generation Jews and Gentiles. So believers... But of a second generation, they, they weren't eyewitnesses to Jesus' ministry. They'd only heard about it. And so as a result, much like you and me, there was this need to once again be reminded of who Jesus is and what he'd accomplished and the significance behind it. Okay, So this was kind of a, a once-removed generation uh, from Jesus' ministry. And so, so John is writing with a great intent to convince and to persuade and to resurrect or invigorate the belief of this audience, okay? And so when you begin to read through the prologue, we get to see these very important themes that really kind of set the tone as to how John wants his gospel to be read. Now, if you're going to read the gospel of John at all, you have to be mindful of chapter 20, verse 31, right? This, this is where John explicitly expresses why he's writing this gospel, right? A summary of it is he says, listen, I'm writing these things, so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you might have life in his name. That's the whole reason he writes this. 
And so when you begin to read the prologue, you see traces of that theme. You see the the foreshadowing of that objective being revealed in these first few verses, right? This this tension between Jesus, the, the miracle that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and are you going to believe in that or not? And what is your response to who Jesus is? And so with that point in mind, let us take a time here and read these first five verses. We're going to take verses one through five on first. And we're going to see how this miracle of Jesus being revealed as the Son of God, as the Christ, begins to change our perspective of the world around us. That's where we're going to start. So if you have your Bibles, follow with me in chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. What a wonderful, poetic introduction to a gospel. And it's this opportunity that begins to invite us into this miracle of the incarnation, this moment where God leaves the comforts of heaven and and takes on flesh and dwells among us. And John is introducing this concept in a very interesting way, and he's doing it in a way that's going to hopefully change our perspective of the world around us, this miraculous event. And so here are a couple of themes that we need to acknowledge as we begin to read these first five verses. The first is the, the reference to <clears throat> excuse me, reference to the word, logos. Okay? In the beginning was the word. Now that is a very simple definition that is used in a very intentional and complex way. Right, word, anything that is spoken, but, but really it carries with it the title that is attributed here to Jesus Christ. And, and this has been intentionally chosen by God in order to speak to his audience, both Jew and Gentile alike. Because in the Greek world, in the Gentile world, this was a term that was used extensively within philosophy. Right? In fact, the, the Stokes would often refer to the word as being kind of representative of God, this controlling force within the universe with which one was supposed to orient their life towards. Right? This was a governing force. Now, from a Judaic background or a Hebrew background, you wouldn't be focused so much on the logos as much as you would be focused on the word of God. But make no mistake, right, it had that same connotation that when God speaks, he reveals himself, he reveals his power, he reveals who he is. And so this word is intentionally connecting to every end of the spectrum. And it's being used in a very significant way. And what we have it being described here as is the fact that the word, the logos, is a creator. That's the first thing that we need to understand, that, that the miracle of the Advent season reminds us that there is a creator. Now, how does John bring that to life? Well, he starts with those first few words, in the beginning. And immediately a reader would be transfixed back to Genesis 1-1, right? In the beginning, God said, let there be light. And it's this whole creative event that transpires. And so he's taking us back to the very dawn of creation. And with that, he is saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Now that preposition with is not used here to say what well, was like God or it had an association with God, it's actually being used to say that there is this unity in nature. They were one. They were together. It's a fascinating description. And so you see 
that Jesus, or the Logos here, the Logos, the Word, was actually part of the creative design. Right? It existed before creation itself. Right? It says, all things were made through him. Nothing that which has been made existed without him. Right? So, so John is going to great lengths here to say that this Jesus existed before all else. Right? He, is, he is pre-existent, so to speak. He is preeminent in his nature. And so as a result, Jesus carries a supremacy over all created things. That is an incredible reality that John is introducing to us. And so the question that you and I need to consider when we look at a passage like this or we enter into the Advent season is, is that how we actually respond? Is that evident in our life? Do we live in a way that reveals that Jesus has the supremacy over all created things? Is he just a convenient idea to us? a familiar story that we can refer back to during a Christmas season, or do we actually move forward in a humble submission that acknowledges the supremacy of Christ? And so that's the first thing that means to alter our perspective, is that there is a creator and he reigns supreme. Now, in addition to that, we see that, that the word, in the word, there was life, and that life was the light of mankind. And so we have this introduction to this concept of what it means to live. Now, from a biblical perspective, over and over again, we see that life is directly connected to the creator. And so the other thing that, oft, or that begins to influence our perception of the world is not just that there is a creator, but life, true life, is found in the creator. In fact, when you begin to look at it biblically, where you see separation from the creator is where life ceases to exist. And so what you and I need to acknowledge is that a lot of times we minimize our understanding of what life really is about, right? We, we, send, we have a tendency to define it in a way that diminishes what life should be, right? And we often reduce it to a simple existence. And so I'm curious this morning, if you were to borrow from that title of that movie, how would you begin to define a wonderful life? And how is it pursued? How do you achieve it? What would make your life more wonderful? And, and a lot of times when we're honest about how we would answer that, we begin to discover that really what drives us are things that make our existence a little bit more easy, maybe more convenient, more successful, more well-known. And so we, we often define life by the accumulation of stuff, don't we? And it's not necessarily material things. Sometimes it's the the family that we have around us that we think is, is really going to be what defines us. Or it is the things that we've achieved through our careers or through our success or the, the homes that we've been able to purchase or the friends that we have. And we have all this accumulation of goods that somehow makes our life easier or more convenient or, or more comfortable. And, and this often becomes how we define life. And I think a lot of times we need to stop and recognize that life is so much more. We were given a very humbling opportunity to have that sort of reminder over the last few days with the passing of President George H.W. Bush, uh, a wonderful man who left uh, a legacy in so many different ways. And I was struck by one of my friends who shared an excerpt from President Bush's inaugural address in 1989, who I think gives us an important point of focus. I want to read to you uh, this paragraph that was shared that I think helps us Remember that life is so much more than what we often reduce it to. 
He says, my friends, we are not the sum of our possessions. They are not the measure of our lives. In our hearts, we know what matters. We cannot hope only to leave our children a bigger car, a bigger bank account. We must hope to give them a sense of what it means to be a loyal friend, a loving parent, a citizen who leaves his home, his neighborhood, and town better than he found it. And what do we want the men and women who work with us to say when we're no longer there? That we were more driven to succeed than anyone around us? Or that we stopped to ask if a sick child had gotten better and stayed a moment there to trade a word of friendship? No president, no government can teach us to remember what is best and what we are. But if the man you have chosen to lead this government can help make a difference, if he can celebrate the quieter, deeper successes that are made not of gold and silk, but of better hearts and finer souls, if he can do these things, then he must. What a wonderful reminder this time of year. And I offer it to you this morning with that challenge that we would go into the Advent season and do more than simply exist. Right? That we would foster deeper hearts, finer souls, that these would be the things that matter. Right? That we would see that life is not found in the sum of our possessions. It is found in a relationship with the Creator. And so how are you fostering that relationship? How are you cultivating that sort of meaning and significance in your life? Now, the other thing that John introduces to this concept of life is that there is light in darkness, right? That that life was the light of mankind, and it shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so now we get these very important themes that are going to kind of set the tone for the rest of the gospel, right? This tension between light and darkness, belief and unbelief. And it's a reminder for you and I today that darkness is a reality. Though there is good news, though there is hope, though there is a creator, there is a force of opposition that we must deal with. There is struggle, there is pain, there are heartaches, there there are all these difficulties that we are going to encounter. Darkness is a reality. And it's something that we have to learn. How do we respond to it in a healthy and meaningful way? Now, the promise of verses 1 through 5 is that there's a light that now shines in that darkness, a light that can set us free, a light that helps us see the way that God wants us to see, and that that darkness has not overcome it. And so we have the opportunity in this Christmas season to acknowledge that many of us walk into this room with a darkness that we have to carry, or we see a darkness in the world that waits beyond those doors. And so how do we handle that? Well, we handle it understanding the hope and the promise that the light is greater than the darkness. And so let us not step into the Advent season into some commercialized tradition. Let us step into this ancient promise that the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And these are the things that begin to change our perspective of the world. There is a creator Life is found in him, and darkness cannot overcome the light that he brings. The light has come. Now, as we transition a little bit further into this prologue, we get to see how John continues to show us not just how this changes our perspective of the world around us, but even the perspective of ourselves. Let's continue for a few verses, verses 6, 7, and 8. He says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. And so now we have this discussion on John the Baptist. 
right? And, and essentially, the gospel writer is referring to John the Baptist using this terminology of being a witness and one who is sent. And so when you think about that, this idea of witness, Kevin did a great job as always in, in explaining that this is somebody that can testify to something. And it's a very important reference here given John's audience, right, that a lot of these people were not eyewitnesses. And so John's saying, listen, there was one that was an eyewitness. There is one that could testify to who this Jesus is. Now, what's unique here is that this is more than just saying that John the Baptist was able to testify to a few facts of the history of Jesus' ministry. Right? This is more than saying, well, he went here at this time and did this. What he is talking about here is somebody that can testify to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. It's more than just the history of Jesus. It's Jesus. Right? That's the whole reason John is writing, right? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you'd have life in his name. And so John is testifying, saying, this is one who is greater than myself. He is the one who God has sent. I'm coming to prepare a way for him. And so it's a testimony to the sonship of Jesus Christ. And so he's not just a witness, he's one that's been sent. Right? Now, when we talk about the word send, it's this Greek word apostello. It's where you eventually get the word apostle. And we've talked about this before. When you look at that word, the emphasis is on the sender. It's not on necessarily the one who is sent or even the message as much as it is on the sender. And so the, the shift here, there hasn't been a shift in verses 6 to 8 on to John the Baptist. The, the emphasis is still on God and what it is that he has sent. And so what I want us to stop and recognize for a moment as we read verses 6 through 8 is that our God is one who sins. And he has sent a message to all of humanity. And the question for you and me this morning is, have we received it? Have you truly received what God has sent to you? Have you truly embraced it? Have you truly recognized it? See, my fear is that a lot of times we go through the pace of the Advent season and we spend more time, more energy, more resources, more money thinking about what we're going to receive from Amazon rather than what we're receiving from the Creator. And so what is going to dictate your Advent season? Have you truly received the miracle of the gospel? How do we do that practically? What does that look like? Here, here are a couple of suggestions for you. Here's some things that I would suggest. Here's how you can receive the good news of this miracle during this Christmas season. Number one, spend time with him. And if life is found in the creator, and if it is found in that relationship, then cultivate that relationship. Let it be more than you just praying on your commute. Right? Let it be more than just saying a few things before your, be- your head hits the pillow as you go to sleep. Carve out some time. Spend time with God, and when you're with him, worship him. Man, give praise for what he has done. Give praise for the miracle that is the Christmas season. See it as good news. I love the way that Chris brought that to light a couple of weeks ago. There is a difference between advice and news. And we don't come to church just to get advice on how to correct this or do this. We come here to celebrate what has already been done for us through Jesus Christ. See it for the good news that it is and worship him. And when we gather in here to sing, let us sing not to each other. Let us not sing because it's some nostalgic song. Let us sing because God has changed everything with the arrival of his son. Let us worship him. 
let us actually receive it. But here's the beauty of the reality of the Christmas message. God is sending a message to you so he can send a message through you. That's the other response. And we, we receive what God has done so that he might send us. Right? John the Baptist becomes an example. He becomes a model in the same way that he can testify to Jesus as being the Son of God, so we should testify to Jesus being the Son of God. We can stand up and point to this is how he's redeemed, this is how he is fixed, this is how he is restored, this is how he has given me strength and support. We point to all these things so that you and I are able to point back to what Jesus has done. And he sends us with that message. He gives us an opportunity to be those that can illuminate the hearts and minds of others. If we receive this light that is the life of mankind, then we get to go and be a light to others. And so another question we must ask ourselves this morning is, where is God sending you? Where is he sending you? There's got to be some darkened corner, darkened heart, darkened situation he is sending you to this season. Maybe it's that friend at school that is swamped in loneliness, the one that nobody wants to talk to or sit by. Maybe it's the estranged family member that you haven't spoken to in years. Maybe it's that standoffish neighbor that continues to build up resistance and walls. And maybe it's, it's the, the person, the friend that's been given some form of a diagnosis and is just struggling with pain. What darkened situation, what, what darkened moment is he sending you to? But make no mistake, he's sending you to represent the light that you yourself have received. And so this begins to change the perspective of ourselves. Not only do we see the world differently, we see ourselves differently. Man, we, we have received this good news, and now we have been sent to declare this good news. Now, why do we do this? The, the, a whole emphasis that we find here that begins to tease the, the message of the whole gospel, we see there in verse 7. We do this so that all might believe. And it's this whole question of belief. Right, this is the whole reason John's written this gospel. I write these things so that you might believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing in him, you'll have life in his name. This notion of belief is to trust, right? To, to actually embrace something as true, to trust it. Now, what I love about it from a biblical perspective is that when we talk about faith, when we talk about belief, when we talk about trust, this is more than just some sort of itemized reaction. This is actually human's reaction to God's action. That's, that's the sort of faith and belief we're talking about. And so how have you reacted to what God has done? What can you point to to say, this is how my life has been transfixed and transformed by the work of Jesus Christ? Right? It, is, it is this total disposition. See, part of the problem that I think we often have with faith and with belief is that we categorize it. We miss the fact that true faith really is a response that allows us to see that our whole life needs to be reoriented to God, that he governs not just elements of our life, but all of our life. And so here's what we'll do. We'll, we'll entrust God with something like, like our safety. And so we just went on a trip. And so, man, I, I hate flying. I hate it. Um, and so I'll get on a plane. I'm like, oh, Lord, keep us safe, please. I just This doesn't make sense, these planes that hover in the air, right? So give me safety, right? And so we'll, we'll put our trust in God when we need it for something specific. So we'll, we'll trust God for safety, but we may not trust him with our career. We may not trust him with our finances, right? Or maybe it'll be our health, 
right? All of a sudden, we've got a, a diagnosis we're worried about or something's jeopardizing our well-being. So, okay, Lord, please heal me of this. Can we, and we'll, we'll put all of our faith in that moment. But we won't trust him with our relationships. We won't trust him necessarily with our future. That's not faith, right? Faith is the total disposition. It's, it's allowing God to totally, truly govern every area of life. That's belief. So when we encounter this opportunity to respond in such a way, the question we have to ask ourselves is, what gets in the way? What prevents us from surrendering with such totality? Right? What clouds our perspective to not see the world or ourselves as we should? And I'm sure it's different for each of us, but as I was reflecting on this this past week, I think one of the reasons we struggle to see things accordingly is because we maybe lose sight of the miracle itself, right? And we, we kind of have this skepticism. Maybe there's a familiarity to it. There's a nostalgia to it. But we fail to stop and truly just reflect on the miracle that is Christmas, right? That the angel of the Lord appeared to a young girl and said, you are highly favored. And you will be with child, and he will take away the sins of the world. And it began to unfold just as it was said. And the word that existed before all else took on flesh and breathed its first cry in a manger. Y'all, it is the miracle of all miracles. Do you truly believe it? Have you truly received it? Have you allowed it to truly transform the way that you see this world and the way you see yourself? May we embrace it today understanding the hope of this promise. The light has come and that changes everything. So here's how I want us to respond to it today. Okay, we're gonna actually end with the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. And so I'm gonna invite the deacons that are going to be administering the elements to take their places in the middle row. Uh, we also have the handbell choir that's going to be leading us in songs of reflection during this time, so I'm going to invite them to come forward to make their way back to the front. <clears throat> and as they get in position, here's what I'm going to ask you all to do in order to prepare your hearts and minds for this time of communion. You see, Part of what we need to do, and part of the reason we even have ordinances in the first place, is to have some form of a tangible, external expression that points to what we believe. Right? To say, I actually believe this to be true, and so I'm going to commit my life through the ordinance of baptism. I believe this to be true, and so I'm going I'm to share in the Lord's Supper. And so we're going to do this communally, to have this physical, tangible, external expression that we would say as a church family, yes, we believe this to be true. And so when we come to the Lord's table, not only are we mindful of the birth of Jesus, but we're mindful of the cross and the empty tomb. See, a lot of times we like to compartmentalize or, or itemize the miracles that Jesus performed rather than just seeing the miracle that is Jesus. And so we come here to the Lord's table mindful of all of it, mindful of his birth, mindful of all that his birth means for you and me. And so my request to you as we prepare in this time is that you would bring your darkened moments to the Lord's table. 
right, that you would bring your mistakes, you'd bring your failures, you'd bring your fears, you'd bring your pain, whatever it is, and you would joyfully surrender it in this moment. And you do so out of worship, you do so out of humility, because we have the chance in this season to celebrate once again that the light has come.